I'll lead a meditation. So I was thinking that meditation that we did last week, um, um, how the Svatantrikas explain the way things exist conventionally. And last week we used the example of a tree and a car. And I thought maybe this week we could use a person. Um, so I just sort of revised it according to how I understand it. I'm not 100% sure if I understand it correctly, but yeah. Anyway, it's interesting to look at how they understand a person. And take a few moments to refresh your bodhicitta motivation that you generated earlier today and make that your reason for being here. Okay, so now for the motivation on how, sorry, for the meditation on how Svatantrika understand uh, the way a person exists, bring to mind one of the other people in this room. Just choose one of the people in this room. And you probably know this person quite well, having spent so much time living together, doing morning and evening practice together, sharing meals together, working together, and so on. So contemplate how you differentiate that person from other persons and other phenomena. What are the unique characteristics of that person that enable you to identify them. So those characteristics appear to your mind and in that way you know that person. 
you establish the existence of that person through your awareness. If there was no awareness, no mind to which those characteristics appear and which then posits or establishes the existence of that person, then the person would not exist. So remember that according to Svatantrika, for something to exist conventionally, there need to be two things. One is characteristics of the object, you know, certain unique, specific characteristics of an object. And they say that those characteristics exist from the side of the object. But that alone isn't enough. Those characteristics of the object need to appear to a mind, a non-defective mind, a correct mind, not a mistaken one. And then that mind posits or establishes the existence of that object with those characteristics. They say both of those two things are needed and they are like two halves of a sphere. To make the sphere whole, both halves need to be there. So in a similar way, for an object to exist, conventionally, there needs to be something from the side of the object, certain specific characteristics. Then there needs to be a mind that is aware of those characteristics, perceives those characteristics, and then establishes, posits, that object. So that's how something exist conventionally. That's how a person exists conventionally. But then Svatantrika say we have a big misconception about that person and about everything else, every other phenomena that exists. And this misconception believes that things like persons exist only by way of their unique characteristics, and they don't need to appear to and be established by a mind. So just spend a few moments contemplating that, see if you can get an understanding of how this wrong conception, which is actually the conception of true existence, it's ignorance, it's completely mistaken, how it operates, how it sees things in a mistaken way as if they only exist from their own side with their own characteristics, don't depend on a mind perceiving them and establishing them.
So that's the meaning of true existence for this school, this the Tantrika school. That's the object of negation, the thing we have to identify and then refute, realize that things don't exist that way, and then we'll realize the emptiness of true existence. So this is, we have this misconception about everything, about other persons, about our own self, about physical phenomena like bodies, tables, cars, trees, and so on, about whatever exists in samsara and beyond samsara, nirvana, enlightenment, so whatever exists we see in this mistaken way as if it's able to exist just by its own characteristics and doesn't depend on mind perceiving and imputing those characteristics. So while I was preparing this meditation, I was wondering if um, if we need, like, you know, we're trying to understand the true nature of things, the actual way things exist, and I wondered if we if we have this misconception, even though according to Prasangika, the Svatantrikas have it wrong. <laughs> You know their their way of explaining things is not correct but i wonder if you know it's still necessary for us to recognize this conception of, of things existing just from their own side without depending on the mind do you know do you understand what i'm saying like do we just totally ignore what the svatantrikas are saying or do we need to meditate on it and try to recognize um, what they're saying and recognize that, you know, in our mind, we do have this misconception. So I remembered a, a talk that was given by Lama Zoparimbashe back in 2000 at Lama Tsongkhapa Institute. Um, and he was talking about the different objects of negation that we have to recognize and then refute, negate. And um, and he did pretty much go through all the different schools and and say that yeah we have to we we have this misconception and we need to refute it and so for svatantrika for this school that we're looking at now he said um without depending on appearing to a non-defective mind and then being labeled by that non-defective mind we see I and aggregates and so forth phenomena as if they exist from their own side. So we also have this hallucination. So he did seem to say that, you know, we do have this wrong conception, this wrong way of seeing things. Um, 
He said, when we look at the eye, the action, the object, the way they appear is this. It is always there. Even though we believe or even though we realize it is labeled by mind, we see the appearance and believe there is an eye on the aggregates. He was mainly talking about our sense of self. And there is a table on the base of the table. All the rest of the phenomena are the same. There is this phenomenon that is findable on that base. So he did seem to be saying that we, we do have a misconception that uh, phenomena exist exclusively from their own side and they don't have to appear to a non-defective mind and be labeled by that. And so it seems like, I don't know, there may be different opinions about that. <laughs> Other lamas may say otherwise, but it seems like it is something we have to meditate on and recognize that we do have this misconception. And, and also it could be that this is a stepping stone towards the prasangika view, which is much subtler. It's more subtle than this one, but um, we may have to recognize this one first. And in fact, in this talk, he was talking about a retreat that he did once. And during that retreat, um, he got a sense of this. He got a sense of this object of negation. And he wondered, you know, if this was the prasangika object of negation, you know, the subtlest one. And he spoke to one of his teachers, Kirti Sancha Brimashe, and explained what he had identified. And Kirti Sancha Brimashe said, no, that's the Svatavtaka one. <laughs> so it makes it sound like, yeah, it, the prasangika object of negation is really, really subtle. And may, we may not be able to identify that right away. We may need to first identify a more coarse one like this. So anyway, I'm just speculating and sharing with you things that I've thought about and heard, um, but it's, yeah, a lot to learn. And the book, Searching for the Self, Volume 7, that's, you know, talking a lot about um, objects of negation and the different ones, the different um, objects of negation explained by the different schools. So when you have time <laughs> to delve into that book, that would be very helpful. Well, because um, what the Svatantrikas say is that um, they do say that things are labeled, that the mind does play a role and labels things. They do, they do say that, but they still say that um, there is something coming from the side of the object. There is characteristics. Well, I got a slide about this later. There is something in the object such that if you search within the parts of the object, like the parts of a table or the parts of a person, you will be able to find something you can point to and say that is the person. So that's what they believe. However, Prasangika say no. Yeah, if you're really analyzing properly, you should, you're really looking for true existence as they explain it or inherent existence. You shouldn't be able to find something. If you find something, 
that that itself is an object of negation. It's it's mm -hmm. it's very complex, and I don't fully understand it myself. But just to know that prasangika goes deeper and refutes more, negates more. Like Svatantrika goes a certain way and then they stop. Maybe it's it's scary to go further than that, you know. <laughs> if you say there's nothing from the side of the object, no, 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 there has to be something there. Otherwise it doesn't exist. So they don't want to go further. So they kind of stop at a certain point and they'll, they'll go further. Um, whereas the Prasangika say, no, there's nothing really there in the object that you can find when you search for it, which is scary. It's, it's really totally opposite to our instinctive way of seeing things, the way we've always seen things, you know. We really, there's this strong feeling there has to be something there, there has to be something in the object, otherwise it doesn't exist. So I think we all have that instinctive fear of going that further step. But Prasangika says, no, you have to go further. <laughs> if you really want to understand emptiness and you really want to get out of samsara, you do have to go further. But yeah, but I think understanding the difference between Svatantrika and Prasangika is not that easy. There's whole books written about it. Um, so, you know, I, I probably don't fully understand it myself. I'm just sharing what I understand, but there's probably a lot more to it than that. It's really not easy. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, last time, last week, we had just started talking about how Svatantrika explains selflessness. And we were looking at one slide that was comparing selflessness of persons and selflessness of phenomena. And it seemed like people were having difficulty understanding that you're probably very tired as well and <laughs> not having a fresh mind. Um, so we'll go back to that, but I thought to approach it in a little bit different way this time that might help. So I made this chart and this chart shows both schools, Svatantrika and Prasangika, because probably most of us in our education, um, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, we are exposed to the Prasangika view. So you probably have heard how the Prasangika explain selflessness or emptiness, and you're more familiar with that. And um, the Svatantrika, there are differences. And so I thought if we start by looking at the Prasangika, then look at the Svatantrika, it will be more clear what, what the differences are. And selflessness is is another term for emptiness. I mean, Kensar Jama Tekchup, one of my teachers, said that they're pretty much synonymous. Um, so sometimes we use the term selflessness, sometimes we use the word emptiness, but they're pretty much the same. So don't think it's Selflessness is one thing and emptiness is another thing. Yeah, so understand that it's the same. And it's important to really be clear how important uh, selflessness is because it's the key to get out of suffering, you know. That's what we're here for. We want to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And um, 
And so, uh, according to, to Buddhism, the cause of suffering, the, the root cause of suffering is ignorance. Ignorance about the true nature of things, how things exist. And that, but then the different schools have different explanations about what that ignorance believes, how that ignorance is mistaken, and what is the true nature of things that we have to realize. So that's what we're kind of looking at in this study of the tenant systems. But it is, so it is difficult, but just appreciate how important it is and, and, and don't give up, don't get discouraged <laughs> because, you know, if you give up and say, oh, this is too hard, I can't do it, then you're, you know, you're not going to be able to eventually get the understanding of emptiness and then be free of samsara. So however difficult it is, we have to keep going and keep working at it and slowly it does get easier i can promise you that I, <laughs> that's my experience um so you just have to keep at it and leave imprints and slowly they become more clear okay so um so in general selflessness is divided into two two groups selflessness of persons and selflessness of phenomena and in a way, selflessness as a person is kind of easier <laughs> because most of the schools um, agree on what that means. Most of the schools except Prasangika. Um, so as we've gone through the different schools, starting with the Babashika and so on, um, the way that they present selflessness of persons is, is the same. Up to pra, up through Svatantrika, Svatantrika, but Prasangika is different. So, do you remember the other schools? How they explain um, coarse selflessness of persons? What is the meaning of coarse selflessness of persons? There's these two levels: coarse and subtle. Absolutely unitary, heartless, independent self. Permanent, yeah. Permanent. So permanent, it, it's a, yeah, there's three things, a, a permanent, unitary, independent, but unitary could also be called partless. Unitary just means you can't break it up into parts. So unitary or partless and then independent. And so those three qualities, a person or a self that has those three qualities and um, the non-Buddhists, like the Indian schools before Buddha and even now today, some of them do explain that there is such a person. That's part of their philosophy. They say there is a person or a soul or a self, Atman, that, that has those three qualities. It's permanent and it's partless and it's independent. And so the Buddhists unanimously disagree with that and say, no, that kind of person doesn't exist. I mean, the Buddha himself realized that such a person doesn't exist. It's just a fabrication of the mind, but not really there. So refuting that is the coarse selflessness of persons. And then the subtle selflessness of persons is... Existent person. Right, long bunch of words. Um, so, so this is refuting a, a person that is self-sufficient and substantially existent. Um, and the way that appears to our mind is like 
the boss. There, there's a sense of a boss or controller somewhere inside. A little bit separate from the aggregates, not completely different, but a little bit different, like in a controlling position, has control over the aggregates. So we all have that sense of self. It's something instinctive or intuitive, inborn. Um, so every being has that. We had it from beginningless time. So all the Buddhist schools agreed that that kind of self doesn't exist, and so we need to refute it. We need to realize that that type of self doesn't exist. So that's the coarse selflessness of phenomena. So that's how all the other schools, except Prasangika, explain selflessness of persons. Now, if you look over on the right-hand side here, Prasangikas have a somewhat different way of explaining selflessness of persons. They have the core selflessness of persons. So the core selflessness of persons for them is what the other schools say is the subtle selflessness of persons. It's the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that doesn't mean that they don't also agree with the other schools' core selflessness of persons, the per emptiness of a permanent, unitary, independent self. They do agree. Yeah, that kind of self doesn't exist either. They, they refute that as well. But they say, I think it's because that isn't innate. Sentient beings don't have that in an innate form. Not everybody has it. It's just something acquired by studying philosophy. And so they don't really count that as selflessness of persons. <laughs> so they start with this one, what the other schools say is the subtle selflessness of persons. And then for the prasangikas, the subtle selflessness of persons is emptiness of an inherently existent person. Now, the reason I put a little smiley face is, is, <laughs> is because some of these categories only apply to persons. Okay, So I put a smiley face if it's only persons. And then other categories are phenomena. So I put a car, I used a car, you know, to represent phenomena other than persons. Yeah. So sometimes the word phenomena in selflessness of phenomena means anything that's not a person, whatever isn't a person. But some of these categories, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it later with Svatantrika. They include both persons and phenomena. So is that clear then, the two, the two divisions of selflessness of persons um, for prasangika? The coarse one and the subtle one, and those only apply to persons. And again, persons are like us, and also all other sentient beings, cats, animals, uh, bugs, hell beings, pratas, gods, and even Buddhas. So Buddha is also a person. So any kind of person would be included there. Okay, so we could do the, that kind of meditation with any person. We could think, okay, do they exist uh, in a self-supporting, substantially existent way? Do they exist inherently? So we could use any person as the basis, although they say it's best if we start with our own self. <laughs> That's the most, the, the, the one that's strongest in our experience, our belief and some kind of self here inside of me, and then that becomes the basis of our afflictive emotions. 
causing us all kinds of problems. So they do recommend we start with our own self, but then later we apply it to other persons as well and understand that they are also empty of that way of existing. So there's these two levels then of selflessness with regard to persons. And then when it comes to selflessness of phenomena, um, some schools divide that into two and they have a course level and a subtle level, but the prasangikas don't have a course level. They only have a subtle level of uh, selflessness of phenomena. So that's down on the bottom. And that is um, emptiness of inherent existence. Emptiness of inherent existence, the way they explain it. Um, we'll be getting into prasangika soon, so we can study more about what they mean by inherent existence. But anyway, that's the object of refutation, and that applies to phenomena other than persons. So anything that's not a person. So cars and tables, but also our aggregates, body and mind, and um, yeah, all other phenomena besides persons. So is that okay then, the prasangika? Okay, now we'll look at the svatantrika. Um, so the selflessness of persons is, as we were just talking, the two levels, coarse and subtle, which is the same as the other schools below svatantrika. So they don't talk about, when, when talking about selflessness of persons, they don't talk about emptiness of true, truly existent person. That doesn't come under selflessness of persons. That comes under selflessness of phenomena. So if we look at selflessness of phenomena, the bottom two boxes, again, there's a coarse and a subtle. Although the coarse type of selflessness of phenomena is only the yogachara, Y-S-M means yogachara, svatantrika, madhyamaka. The other um, group, the other category of svatantrika don't talk about this. So this is just yogachara. And so it's the emptiness of a, a form and its valid cognizer being different substances or different entities. So that's similar to Chitamatra, where they say that when we perceive an object, it seems to be out there, a different nature, different entity from the mind, separate from the mind, but that is mistaken. Whatever we perceive, all phenomena that we know um, arise from a, a seed ripening in our mind, kind of being projected out there. So it looks like it's out there, but it's not really. It's um, coming from the mind and it's one nature of the mind. So, so they say we have this wrong conception, this wrong way of seeing things that they seem to be separate, external, independent of the mind, but that is wrong. So the emptiness of that wrong way of appearing is this coarse selflessness phenomenon. And that I put a car there because it definitely applies to phenomena other than persons. But then I started wondering, I wonder if this applies to persons as well. So I put in parentheses a little smiley face with a question mark. Because um, according to Chittamatra, they say that, um, let me see, what do they say? 
Yeah, Chittamatra says, all phenomena are of the nature of mind. All phenomena. And that seems to include persons. Person is a phenomena. So everything, everything that exists is of the nature of the mind. So um, thinking, this is a Geshe question, I have to check. <laughs> but yeah, if, if that course selflessness of phenomena applies to persons as well as other kinds of phenomena. Because they usually talk about objects of our senses, you know, things that we see and smell and taste and so on, that they don't exist externally. But I would think persons persons would would be the same. Persons are definitely things that we see. <laughs> we see persons. And uh, yeah, I think they do say that when we see a person, the way that person appears is coming from our own mind, coming from a seed ripening in our mind. So it seems that they would also be included in that kind of emptiness. That makes sense. I'm not 100% sure, but that's my guess. Okay, but then again, that's just the Svatantrika, sorry, the Yogacara Svatantrikas who say that. And then the subtle selflessness of phenomena down at the bottom, that applies to both types of Svatantrika. So, um, so that means the emptiness of true existence, as they explain true existence. And that applies to all phenomena, including persons. Yeah. So whatever exists, persons and cars and everything, whatever exists, is empty of true existence. So does that make sense then? <laughs> These different, yeah. It's it's so much to remember, and I often have like in, in meditation on emptiness, Jeffrey Hopkins' big big book, somewhere around page three hundred, he has charts showing all the different schools and what they say is selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena. So it's hard to keep it in mind. I I often have to go back to that and remind myself what does this school say about that. So um, yeah. It is complex. Okay, so now we're still on Svatantrika. We haven't quite finished Svatantrika yet before we move on to Prasangika. Oh, just go back to that chart. Okay, so according to Svatantrika, uh, if we want to get out of samsara, we want to free ourselves from samsara and attain liberation, attain nirvana, not have any more suffering, not have any more rebirth, what do we have to do? What do we have to realize? <laughs> Subtle selflessness of persons. <laughs> right. Okay. So so it's the second the second one down, the second box down from under Svatantrika, the emptiness of a self-supporting substantially existent person. So that's the one that you need to meditate on and realize to get out of samsara, to be free of all suffering and cause of suffering and not have to take rebirth anymore. That's all you have to do. And now, if you're a bodhi, if you're a bodhisattva or an aspiring bodhisattva, and you want to get to enlightenment, you want to become a Buddha to help all sentient beings, 
what you have to do, what you have to realize. And also having consistency of Yeah, so the last one on the bottom, the subtle selflessness of phenomena, which is emptiness of true existence of all phenomena. So that's what bodhisattvas may, mainly meditate on, um, to get rid of the conception of true existence, which is the for them the thing that prevents enlightenment. It doesn't prevent nirvana. Okay, so that's what this school says. Uh, the conception of true existence doesn't stop you from attaining nirvana. You can still have that conception in your mind and attain nirvana. Yeah, it sounds strange to us because <laughs> we're so used to prasangika, but that's what they say. Prasangika is kind of radical. They're out there, different from everybody else. But yeah, they say so. Um, the conception of true existence prevents enlightenment, Buddhahood. So if you want to attain that, then you have to overcome the conception of true existence. But it doesn't prevent nirvana. Is that clear? Now, prasangika, what do they say? Uh, in order to get to nirvana, to get out of samsara and attain nirvana, and not have to suffer anymore, not have to take rebirth anymore, what do you have to realize? Emptiness of an inherently existing person. Um, emptiness of an inherently existing person. Is that all? No, you have to realize the emptiness of inherent existence of all phenomena, not just persons. So this is a big difference um, with, with prasangika. If you want to attain nirvana, or you want to attain enlightenment, either one, whichever you're aiming for, nirvana or enlightenment, um, you you must attain, you must realize the emptiness of inherent existence of persons and phenomena. Everything. There's a famous, um, oh, I guess it's famous. I think it's in the Precious Garland, Nagarjuna's um, text where he says something about, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something about how, yeah, as long as we conceive the aggregates as inherently existing, you know, if we continue um, thinking of our aggregates as inherently existing, we will not be able to fully realize emptiness of persons. So that's kind of proof that it's not enough just to realize uh, emptiness of persons. In fact, we, we can't. We can't fully realize emptiness of a person if we still think of our aggregates as inherently existing because the aggregates are the basis of imputation of a person. And so if we're still conceiving of aggregates, body and mind, as inherently existing, they exist inherently, how can we realize that the person imputed on them um, doesn't exist inherently? That makes sense. So he's saying, you know, if we still grasp at aggregates, bodies and minds, and think that they exist inherently, they are inherently existing, then we will also continue thinking the person, because the person is just imputed on those aggregates. The person is also inherently existing. We can't realize a person empty of inherent existence and still think aggregates are inherently existing. I mean, that's kind of a subtle point, but anyway, that's that's the point he's making. <laughs> and so, 
Um, there's a whole big discussion about this in Chandra Kirti's text, which is a commentary to Nagarjuna. But this is the Prasangika view that it's not enough just to meditate on a person, on persons like yourself and other persons, and realize them as uh, empty of inherent existence, and and not the aggregates, not aggregates. That's the main phenomena you need to meditate on and realize as empty of inherent existence. So according to Prasangika, we'll, we'll be coming to them soon, but yeah, they say that both subtle selflessness of persons and subtle selflessness of phenomenons, phenomena have to be meditated on and realized to attain both nirvana and enlightenment. So those who just want to attain nirvana they have to meditate on that, and bodhisattvas who want to attain Buddhahood also have to meditate on that. Not everybody meditates on that. But this is kind of a radical view. Other other schools don't agree with them. <laughs> but yeah, they, they disagree with a lot of things in the Prasangika. Okay, so now let's go back to this, this is the one we got stuck on last week. So hopefully it'll be more clear now. And, and, and I took this from Judson Chucky Gelson's text on tenets. So he, he mentioned this, so it seems to be important to look at. So this is um, showing the difference between uh, the two kinds of selflessness, the subtle Subtle selflessness of persons and subtle selflessness of phenomena. What's the difference between them? And again, this is just just Svatantrika. We're still on Svatantrika. And so he says the, the difference between them is um, the object that's being negated, the object of negation, the thing that's being refuted, being proved as non-existent. That's the thing that differentiates them. And it's not by the basis, basis meaning the object that you're meditating on to understand how does it exist. So he said, um, so, uh, and he's using the person, uh, person as, as an example. On the, on the person or related to a person, if you refute true existence, you're refuting true existence, that is the subtle selflessness of phenomena. So when you're looking at a person, like you could think of the person you use during the meditation, you're looking at that person and asking yourself, does that person truly exist or not? Is that person truly existing? And if you realize, no, they are empty of true existence, you're refuting true existence on that person, then that's meditation on subtle selflessness of phenomena which is odd, because it's a person, but it's included in selflessness of phenomena. That makes sense? Let's just go on. And then, the, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to you, don't worry. <laughs> and then again, on that same person, if you're meditating and asking, does that person exist in a self-supporting, substantial existent way? Is there a self-supporting, substantially existent person there in that person? 
and you refute that, you realize, no, they don't exist that way, to refuting that kind of um, wrong, wrong conception, then that is subtle selflessness of persons. So that means you can use the same object, a person, and meditating in one way, you realize uh, the subtle selflessness of phenomena. Meditating in another way, you can realize the subtle selflessness of persons. So that's the difference between, this is how they explain the difference between the two types of selflessness. It's by the object of negation, what is being negated. And all kinds of, what is basis of emptiness? Basis simply means the object that, well, it depends on, like if you're meditating, you're trying to understand emptiness, you want to understand emptiness, you have to use an object. You can't just meditate on nothing and get an understanding of emptiness. It has to be an object. It could be a table, it could be a thermos, it could be a person, it could be a body. So you're using that object and you're analyzing how does it exist. Is it truly existing or not truly existing? So that's how you get a, a realization of emptiness. So the basis simply refers to the object that you're meditating on. And uh, I mean, that object does have emptiness as its quality. Emptiness is like a quality of that object. It's already there. Emptiness is already there. And we just we're just trying to realize it. The basis of emptiness here is the person. So, yeah, here it's saying a person, uh, but it could be another object. But in this case, because we're comparing these two types of selflessness, um, I think, you know, both of them would only work with a person. Because when it comes to a table, um, we don't have a conception of a table being self-supporting, substantially existent. That kind of conception only occurs with persons. Does that make sense? But then when I was <laughs> when I was preparing this and thinking about this, I kind of wondered, um, where did I have my notes for that? Um, yeah. So they say normally we don't have a conception of a self-supporting, substantially existent person with respect to inanimate objects, like tables. But then I was wondering about things like stuffed animals. <laughs> Is it possible with Buddha bear, for example? Could you have a conception of Buddha bear being self-supporting, substantially existent? Having being a self-supporting, substantially existent person, or imaginary beings, you know, like Harry Potter, or comic book heroes, or yeah, these kind of—they don't—they're not real persons. They wouldn't qualify to be real persons. They're more like imaginary persons, and yet people can still get very attached to them, fall in love with them, and and so on. So I was just kind of wondering. It's it's just an idea that I that I had, and um, you can think about it yourself. Um, and I also remember this. There was this film called Castaway. Did anyone see Castaway? Mm -hmm. About this guy who was on a island for 
four years, I think, all by himself. And um, and there was a volleyball. I think it was a volleyball. Uh, Wilson volleyball. <laughs> and he made it into a person. He drew a face on it, and I think he didn't. He stick some straw on top to make it look. <laughs> and that was his companion because he was all alone. He had nobody to talk to. So he started talking to this volleyball. <laughs> they called him Wilson. And then, you know, towards the end, when he finally got off the island and he was on that raft and there was this terrible storm and the volleyball got knocked off into the, you know, off into the sea. He was, he was, he had a meltdown. He was so upset. I mean, it was just a movie, just fictional, but you could imagine that, yeah, it's possible. You could get so attached to this imaginary person and feel grief just like you would for a real person. So anyway, it was just something I was thinking about. Can we, can we have a conception of a self-supporting, substantially existent person with regard to teddy bears and volleyballs and imaginary superheroes and so on? Okay, anyway, so that's how the Svatantrikas differentiate uh, the two types of selflessness, the subtle selflessness of persons and the subtle selflessness of phenomena. The difference between them is what you're negating, what you're refuting. Then the second point is um, comparing the two self-graspings. So this term self-grasping refers to a mind, uh, a conceptual mind, um, and it grasps at or conceives of a, of a self. And the term self is tricky because it can actually mean different things in different contexts. Sometimes the term self is used for some false way of existing, like a permanent unitary independent self or an inherently existing self, so it's sort of a, a false uh, self that doesn't really exist, but we imagine it does and grasp at it. So sometimes the word self is used in that way, like here. So self-grasping, the term self-grasping means a conception, conceptual mind that grasps at and believes in a certain type of self that isn't really true, doesn't really exist. But the word self is sometimes used for the conventional self. We do have, we are a person, we are a self. There is a self that is born and lives and eats and sleeps and works and meditates and eventually attains enlightenment. So there is a kind of conventionally existent self. So sometimes the word self refers to that. Um, so you just have to look at the context and understand the term self, what it means in different contexts. So here, self-grasping, this refers to the mind, the conceptual mind that is grasping at or believing in some false kind of self. And so two self-graspings means self-grasping of persons and self-grasping of phenomena. So we, we have those two kinds of conceptions. And what's the difference between them? How are they differentiated? So it's saying here that, according to Svetandraga, the difference between them is the mode of grasping, how they grasp, 
how they conceive rather than the observed object. The observed object means the object that's being uh, grasped at, you could say, referring to that object and then grasping at that object. And so again, the, the, you can use the same object here, and the object is a person. Um, so observing the base, a person, and then grasping it as truly existent, that's self-grasping of phenomena. So when we grasp at our own self, our own I as truly existing, or we grasp at some other person as truly existing, that's actually self-grasping of phenomena according to this school, because that's how they explain it. <laughs> but on the other hand, if we uh, you know, focus on a person, observe a person, and then and grasp it as self-supporting and substantially existent, that is self-grasping of persons. It falls into that particular category. So it depends on what kind of self you're grasping, how you're grasping, how you're conceiving, misconceiving the person, seeing them as truly existing or seeing them as having self-supporting substantial existence. So I'm, I guess I'm spending time on this because it, it does seem to be considered quite important by the Tibetans because they make it they kind of make a big deal about the difference between Svatantrik and Prasangika. And this is one of the differences, is the way that they explain selflessness or emptiness. And um, so you'll probably encounter it again. Don't worry if you don't understand it. You can just leave it there. <laughs> Later you might hear some teachings and then it'll pop up in your mind. Oh yeah, I heard about that in Tenet's class. So... Yeah, so when it comes to these kind of subjects that are very difficult and complex and mind-bending, you, you, you may sometimes feel like, ah, <laughs> it's good to go for a walk, go do some work in the forest, do something to relax. Don't keep banging your head against the wall trying to understand them. <laughs> and I remember when, when I first started studying um, Buddhist philosophy, I was living in a big Dharma center and Right, we um, yeah, a big community of people, and and those of us who were doing this kind of studies after lunch every day, we would go out. There were big lawns, big beautiful flat lawns in this place. We would go out with a bunch of frisbees and just throw frisbees <laughs> or play volleyball. So that was a way that we kind of got out our our kind of stress from trying to understand these difficult topics. So yeah, sometimes it's good to do something different more physical, more light, and then come back to it. Yeah, don't give it up completely, but just take breaks from it. Okay, so we got a little bit more to go with Svatantrika. And so this is the last point of the seven points that are there for each of the schools. The last point is the presentation of grounds and paths. This is talking about how a practitioner progresses on the path to their goal, whether it's nirvana or enlightenment. What do they have to meditate on? And Svat, uh, so again, Svatantrika has two divisions, the, the Yogachara Svatantrika and the Sotrantika Svatantrika. So the Yogachara Svatantrika has a rather unique 
explanation that isn't found anywhere else. Um, and so they say that the three types of practitioners, which are hearers, solitary realizers, bodhisattvas, um, each of them has a, um, a main object that they meditate on. And by meditating on that object, they uh, abandon or get rid of um, particular objects to be abandoned, obscurations. So we'll just go through that. Those who are doing the se uh, 70 topics class would have heard it already in there. I think we went through it some time ago. So here, so hearers are those who uh, wish to attain nirvana. And they, they're sometimes called disciples. Shravaka is the Sanskrit term. So the, yeah, so their their goal is nirvana, getting out of samsara. And their main object of abandonment is the conception of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. And that's the main afflictive obscuration. Uh, afflictive obscurations are the things you have to get rid of to attain nirvana. So the, that's the main one, the conception of a self-supporting, substantially existent person, plus all the other afflictions like anger, attachment, jealousy, and so on that are based on that wrong conception of a self. So that's those are the things they want to get rid of. And so their main object of meditation is just that. They meditate on the emptiness of that kind of person. That's the... Which kind of selflessness is that, according to this school? Hmm? It's yeah, subtle selflessness of persons. <laughs> that's their main object of meditation. And their goal, or what do they attain as a result of all this, is called small enlightenment. Yeah, it's, enlight it's a kind of enlightenment, but it's relatively small. Um, well, that'll get more clear later. And then solitary realizers, this is another kind of practitioner, uh, Pracheka Buddhas in Sanskrit. Um, and um, they're, they also aim for nirvana, but they usually spend more time on the path, more time meditating and accumulating merit. So they attain a somewhat higher level of nirvana or enlightenment. Okay, so their main object of abandonment, the thing they want to get rid of, is the conception grasping form and its apprehender, the mind apprehending it as different substances. So that's, again, this view similar to the Chittamatrans, that things aren't really existing out there externally, but coming from our mind. So they meditate on the emptiness of that wrong appearance of things being out there. Uh, sometimes it's called duality. It's a simple way of saying it. The emptiness of duality. Um, so the conception that thinks things are existing externally, that's the thing they want to get rid of. And so what they meditate on, their main object of meditation, is the emptiness of that. Emptiness of um, subject and object being different, being different nature, different substances. So is this particularly form only? Or? 
Um, they mainly abilities? talk about form. They mainly talk about, yeah, physical form that we perceive with our senses, like things we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, the things we perceive with our five senses. So they say all those things, um, even though they seem to be out there, external, separate from the mind, but they actually come from a seed in our mind that's ripening and causing those appearances. So it's like something in our mind is throwing an appearance out there and projecting something out there. So it seems to be out there from its own side, but it's actually not. So yeah, they mainly talk about form, but as I was saying before, I think, because they do say that all phenomena, all phenomena, are of the nature of mind and you know there's pheno all phenomena includes more than just form it also includes persons it also includes permanent things yeah so they don't normally talk about that but i think if we question <laughs> then then yeah that would be included as well yeah so everything we see everything we experience is just something appearing from our mind, like projected from our mind, like dreams. They use the example of a dream. Maybe they mention form here because this really appears to come from outside for us. Yeah. So things are maybe easier to relate to as something. Yeah, I mean, I think most of our experiences are of forms. You know, we, we really do deal a lot with physical, uh, physical forms. Um, more than abstract things that are just things we conceive of. And so, yeah, so that misconception is what they want to get rid of. And to get rid of it, they meditate on the emptiness of that way of existing. And they attain a middling enlightenment. Um, so actually, according to the school, this conception grasping you know subject and object as different substance this is considered to be a subtle sorry coarse form of knowledge obscurations obscurations sometimes venerable calls cognitive obscurations or sometimes called obscurations to enlightenment or knowledge obscurations so in this school, they, they differentiate a coarse type of knowledge obscurations and a subtle type of knowledge obscurations. So this one is considered a coarse one. And then the subtle one is next. We'll look at what the bodhisattvas overcome. That's just a um, detail you don't need to worry about. But so, so anyway, the point is solitary realizers kind of abandon more. They clear out more misconceptions in their mind than the hearers do. And also they spend more time on the path. They spend usually a hundred eons accumulating merit. So they have more merit. And that's the reason why they're said to have a higher level of enlightenment or nirvana. And then the hearers. Um, then next slide is the bodhisattvas. Okay, so... Bodhisattva's main object of abandonment is a conception grasping true existence. That's considered the kind of most subtle misconception. 
So they want to get rid of that one because that stands in the way of enlightenment. And their main object of meditation is the emptiness of true existence of all phenomena. So they meditate on how all phenomena, persons and everything else, are empty of true existence. And they gain that realization. And in that way, they attain great enlightenment. So great enlightenment means full enlightenment, Buddhahood. And they also spend more time on the path, usually three countless great eons or more, um, accumulating merit, you know, the two accumulations of merit and wisdom to attain their goal. Does that make sense? So there are those three, three different ways of practicing for the three types of persons. But just quickly, we'll finish this slide and then we'll stop. The Sotrantikas Vatantrikas um, have a little different presentation. They say that both hearers and solitary realizers meditate mainly on the subtle selflessness of persons, the absent, the emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantial existent person. So that's what they meditate on. And by doing that, they abandon the afflictive obscurations they abandon the conception of a self-sufficient, substantial existent person and all the afflictions that come from that. And um, so they, they have the same object of meditation and abandon the same um, obscurations. But there are differences in their collection of merit and how much time they spend accumulating it. So the hearers it's been around three lifetimes or more. It could be more, but three is the minimum. I think 14 is the maximum, 14 lifetimes. Um, and again, the solitary realizers spend 100 eons, 100 eons accumulating merit. So they spend much more time accumulating merit. And that accounts for why they have a somewhat superior uh, attainment at the end than the hearers. That makes sense. And then bodhisattvas um, uh, as above. So the bodhisattvas again meditate on emptiness of true existence of all phenomena, and they abandon that conception that grasps true existence of all phenomena, and then they attain the great enlightenment of, of Buddhahood, full enlightenment Buddhahood. So that that finishes, well, there's just one little bit more, but we'll, I'll leave it for next week about the sutras, different kinds of sutras, um, definitive and interpretable. And then we'll move on to Prasangika. Start Prasangika next time. Any questions before we finish? So you might find yeah, all this terminology and different concepts and all hard to understand, hard to relate to. But again, the more you get familiar with it and the more you hear teachings on it and read about it and meditate on it, then it starts to make more sense. You sort of fill in the, the spaces in between all the complicated words and um, 
And again, it is important to understand these things because we have dedicated our lives to learning the Dharma and practicing the Dharma with the goal of attaining Buddhahood and enlightenment. So it is important to know uh, what we have to do. <laughs> if we want to reach enlightenment, what are the things we have to do? Um, so the more we can study and understand the path and at least start learning about these topics that we need to meditate on, start to meditate on them. And it's like we're going in that direction of enlightenment. Okay, so I had prepared a lot more today, but as usual, I ran out of time. Okay, so we'll continue next week. Oh yeah, we'll dedicate merit. Venerable Lamsa, would you like to lead the prayers? Due to this merit, may we soon continually consider Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.